0: let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. When I was about 10 years old um, and we worshiped in an assembly of God church in Hayward, California, I was in an organization called the sky pilots. <laughs> and to get the uh, corporal uh, rank, um, I had to memorize John 3, um, but all the way to verse 21. Um, the Revised Common Lectionary we use does, likes to leave out the judgment parts, and that's what goes on from after verse 17. But I, I memorized it all. So this is a very familiar passage for me. And then the Romans 4 passage, when I was 15. And uh, we lived in Sacramento, an intern that summer in the, working with the youth. A student at Dallas Theological Seminary, no less, um, came to my house and led me in a Bible study of Romans 4 that uh, literally changed the course of my life. So these two passages are very significant um, for me. But I wanted to focus especially on this um, relationship between Nicodemus and Jesus, as Beth has introduced it to us as well. This guy was a very important guy. Um, He was a leader of the Jews, probably a member of the Council of Elders called the Sanhedrin, which would be very similar in some ways to our U.S. Senate. I don't know if he was Democrat or Republican, but he was really important. He was a religious guru. He was an educated and well-positioned religious leader. Uh, In other words, he wasn't just a passerby. He wasn't just somebody in the crowd. In fact, John uh, also tells us he was a Pharisee. And among the Jews, the Pharisees were most careful to stress observance of the law and the traditions of the elders as a way of hastening the day of salvation that Israel had been looking for. Uh, in fact, uh, they had been anticipating this since the time that God made his promise to Abraham, that Paul refers to in Romans 4. Now, contrary to a lot of popular images of, that Christians have of the Pharisees, they were very highly respected by the people. I mean, who couldn't respect somebody like Nicodemus who lived a life of piety and purity, trying to please God? Uh, of, and if, In fact, of all the religious factions in New Testament Judaism, Jesus was probably most clo- more closely associated with the Pharisees than he was with any other group. Now, maybe that's one reason why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, as John says. John seems to think it's important to tell us that Jesus came by night. That's why I refer to this passage as Nick at night. <laughs> but but John, the interesting thing is, John doesn't tell us why he came by night. Maybe it was out of fear. I mean, Nicodemus had a whole career at stake. He had a reputation to protect. And this guy he's going to meet had just cleared the temple in John's sequence in the gospel. And and that might upset some of his fellow Jewish leaders. That would be like um, maybe um, a Christian pastor today who would be concerned if his congregation knew that or her congregation knew that um, if they were teetotalers, that he was hanging out with a guy who had just made wine out of water um, for a lot of folks who had already had a lot to drink. Um, Well, I mean, still this man he had performed signs. So um, this indicates he, he came from God, as John says. He was in the presence of God. And so there's no doubt that God was with Christ in a special way that Um, as, as Beth was implying, that Nicodemus addresses Jesus with respect. This guy, he was impressing Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is careful. He comes by night, but he's also very curious. Some have suggested that he came by night for another reason. He may have wanted a very long, uninterrupted talk with Jesus that was not possible during the day when Jesus was surrounded by huge crowds. In that case, or whatever, in any case, the conversation that's recorded here in John 3 is just a snippet of a much longer conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus no doubt had. Well, for whatever reason, Nicodemus comes to Jesus teacher to teacher, as it were, full of questions. In fact, that is actually the gist of his opening comment in verse 2. He begins by asking Jesus, who are you really? Now that's a good start, because that's always the central question. It's the question that concerned Jesus above all. You remember when he polled his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's the only question, only question that really matters in the end, or in the beginning, as in this case, as, as it did here. I mean, who is Jesus? Get it right, believe in him, and you'll begin to experience the kind of flourishing life that the translators translate eternal life, a life that can begin right now. When I was in seminary, when I knew everything, (laughs) the professor in my apologetics class gave us some wise advice. He said, whenever you are in a conversation with a representative of a Christian cult, always keep the focus on the identity of Jesus Christ. So sure enough, during that semester, two Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. I invited them into our living room, and we had a conversation. They kept wanting to turn the conversation to current, the current state of affairs, which they said was depressing. And to predictions about the end times, which they said was going to be good. And I kept turning the question back to the the conversation back to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Well, eventually we parted company, shaking hands and agreeing that on that crucial question, we were at an impasse. We couldn't agree. Well, in this story of Nick and Knight, what began as this kind of clandestine attempt to check out this guy, this new guy in town, is going to end up rocking the theological and spiritual world of this Pharisee. I mean, for starters, did you notice that Jesus' response is not related to Nicodemus' opening remark or implied question? That's fairly typical of Jesus. In this case, it it actually sounds almost absurd. Nicodemus opens with a very respectful acknowledgement of Jesus' reputation. We know that you are a man come from God. And Jesus then tells him that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. I mean, if I was Nicodemus, I would say, I wonder if he just heard what I just said. Doesn't follow. The problem isn't that Jesus didn't hear Nicodemus rightly. It's that Jesus has no interest in how amazed Nicodemus is with his credentials. Jesus is interested in Nick's relationship to God. Perhaps Nicodemus thought that Jesus would be impressed by that kind of respectful opening. But as far as Jesus is concerned, Discussing the signs that Jesus performed was not the issue with which Nicodemus needed to be confronted at this particular time on this night. Right now, Nicodemus needed some theological correctives. And so Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter with this man on this night. In fact, his emphasis... In verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God. And his emphasis in verse 7, you must be born again, is an indication that Jesus was emphatic about something he knew that was just what Nicodemus needed to understand. And I think what we learn from Jesus' encounter with people like Nicodemus is that our evangelizing often must often concern itself less with a person's verbalized concerns or questions like, you know, something like, what about those people who never hear the gospel? And it needs to focus more with helping people ask the right questions, questions which they may not otherwise think to ask because sin has skewed their perspective on life or as John's Gospel puts it, because they've been running toward the darkness and really have no interest in pleasing God. Sometimes we just don't know the right question to ask. In Nicodemus's case, he perhaps didn't know the itch that needed to be scratched. A friend of mine went to a doctor who practiced alternative medicine and she was complaining about a recurring problem in her shoulder. And so the the doctor began to work on her foot. and She said, that's not my problem. He, she made a fuss, but the doctor told her that, no, actually, that's the real source of your problem. And he was right. And in this case, Jesus identifies the real need that Nicodemus has. And Jesus is right. He's right, not because he has a doctorate in psychology, but because, again, Jesus doesn't need credentials. Three times. Three times he begins his assertions with amen, amen, right? Now, modern translations like the ESV that we use here at HTC, you translate that truly, truly. And those of us in my generation who grew up with the King James Version We heard it as verily, verily, right? Which didn't make any sense to us. (laughs) Can you imagine a a 10-year-old memorizing this, you know? Verily, verily, I say unto you. Actually, I say unto thee. (laughs) But the point is, as someone once put it, Jesus didn't need footnotes. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, Jesus is saying, take it from me. He was making assertions based on his own authority, not based on some tradition or some theological school. When Nicodemus encountered Jesus that night, he was confronted by a man who, as the police report will put it in John seven forty six, spoke like no one else ever had. Unless, unlike Jesus, you know, we, we're not like that. We have a tendency to bolster the word of God, you know, with our human cleverness, with footnotes. John Calvin was adamant that Scripture is self-authenticating, by which he meant that the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers who wrote Scripture 2,000 or 3,000 years ago is the same Holy Spirit who is active in our lives right now as we read Scripture to make it come alive for us. And yet how often do we, who have high views of Scripture in our doctrinal formulations, how often do we really rarely practice what we confess? I was guilty of this uh, and appropriately chastised when I was a student at Wheaton College in the early 70s. I was a philosophy major and I was a participant in an evangelistic organization that provided me with very good rational arguments for the truth of Christianity. So the letters that went back and forth as I tried to convince my agnostic cousin who was in Boston at the time that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that Christianity is true. Well, she wasn't convinced until one day I received a letter from my cousin that told me how excited she was that she went to see a Catholic priest who told her just to go back and read the Gospel of John. And she was amazed at the Jesus that she met in that Gospel. It had a greater impact on her than all the arguments I had mustered, and I should have known better. I felt scolded like a dog who scoots away with a tail between his legs, you know. I knew the verses from Isaiah, my word will go forth and will not return to me empty. I knew 1 Timothy, I knew the verse, all scripture is inspired and is profitable. But what I knew and what I really trusted were two very different things. The rational arguments, they have their place, but we must take stock from time to time and ask ourselves what we're really placing our confidence in. What are you placing your confidence in to change people's lives? Sometimes the problem isn't that we want to help God's inspired word to make more sense. In case you didn't notice, when Tom read the story to us, Jesus' responses to Nick don't seem to be on the same page. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that one has to be born, and the Greek word is anothen, to see the kingdom of God, that word anothen can be translated from above or again. Now maybe Jesus was just trying to be intentionally ambiguous with, with Nicodemus. Nicodemus does seem to be confused, right? But for Jesus, being born unoften, from above, was just another way of saying you must be born of God. So Jesus was insisting that folks have to experience a second birth, a second birth, not not of the flesh again, but of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God, by the way, which created the universe And the point that I think Jesus is really trying to make here is that with this image of rebirth is that we have little, if any, choice in the matter of seeing the kingdom of God. To ask someone, do you want to be born again? Should sound as strange as asking a fetus, do you want to be born? In other words, we have no more role in becoming a new creation in Christ than we had in the creation of the world. I mean, Jesus tried to reinforce this point in verse 8 after he talks about the business of being born again in verse 7. Though to be sure, he's still not completely transparent. He tries to help Nicodemus to understand what it means to be born from above when he speaks of the wind blowing where it likes. By the way, you really need to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes at this point because this has to be confusing for Nicodemus. Talking about the wind... Yeah. The wind blows where it likes. The wind is the voice of the spirit that Ruach in Genesis 2:7. And like the wind, the spirit's voice is uncontrollable and undetectable, but its effects are unmistakable. And again, we're literally at the mercy of God in this rebirth. If we were not at the mercy of God, it would not be grace. The grace that Paul is talking about in Romans 4, because grace is a gift. And grace is not a gift if we expect it and think we earn it. I remember my first time sailing. A parishioner from our church in New Jersey thought I needed some diversion in my life while I was studying. So he took me out on his little sailboat for an experience and a lesson. Once out, I was amazed that I could not tell which direction the wind was blowing. And so my teacher taught me to look up at the mast and see this little rag that he had attached above the sail. Its direction, it was indicating the strength and the course of the wind. Our moves were dictated by what was uncontrollable and undetectable, but the effects of that wind were unmistakable. You can't control God's Spirit. But the Spirit's movements in our lives are unmistakable and often amazing. Indeed, if our spiritual birth, if our regeneration were up to us, I think we might never make it. Any more than you'd want to leave the the safety and familiarity of the womb to suffer a very difficult passage into a life that, you know, is completely unknown and foreign. Even if it were up to us, we probably wouldn't see it to its completion. Which is why the New Testament assures us that he, the one who began a good work in our lives, will see it to its completion. But then, yeah, of course, that, that raises, I know, some of you are thinking, that raises important theological questions that are couched in words like election and predestination. You know, but when our salvation is at stake, the point is not to ask who's in and who's out. That would be playing Nicodemus' role in this conversation, using a diversion tactic, like asking... What about the people who've never heard the gospel? Or how can I be born again? Should I enter my mother's womb? You know, Nicodemus' responses make Jesus a little testy. Hmm? That's why. That's the way he is sometimes. I mean, Jesus doesn't pander. Jesus doesn't stroke our egos. He doesn't affirm. He doesn't affirm us if he gets less from us than what he expects because that's what he does with Nicodemus, because he gets less from Nicodemus. He's frustrated. In our gospel reading that Tom read, Jesus asks this Pharisee, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Now, Jesus isn't just reprimanding Nicodemus in verses 11 and 12 here because the you in greek here is plural. In other words, what Jesus is really saying to Nicodemus is this. If all y'all don't get what I'm saying now, how are all y'all going to understand anything else I tell all y'all? <laughs> I mean, um, you know you know when the police report comes to the chief priests and Pharisees in John chapter 7 those religious leaders berate the police for believing for, for being like the crowds who they believe are deceived because not one of those religious authorities, not one of those Pharisees believe in this Jesus that all y'all religious leaders really don't get it and Nicodemus seems to be one of those. Well given what Jesus has told Nicodemus in Uh, that you must be born again and no one can enter the kingdom of God unless. He's telling him that it's not enough to be a child of Abraham. It's not enough to depend on your natural birth. It's not enough to be a religious leader any more than God's blessing is only going to be poured out on the circumcised as Paul talks about in Romans 4. Pedigree, pedigree and religious knowledge is not an adequate basis for a relationship with God. One must be born into God's family by means of the Spirit of God. A person can have all the revs and doctors in front of his name, as did Nicodemus. A person can have an alphabet soup of M.A.s and Ph.D.s after her name. But as Tony Campolo is fond of saying, In the end, it's not your title, it's your testimony. It's not your title, it's your testimony. The only credential that you and I can bring to Jesus is our extreme need and trust in Jesus. That's the only way you can come to this table this morning. Is admitting to Jesus, I'm not worthy to receive you, but just say the word and I will be healed. That came home to me one series of Sundays in Chicago. I was teaching a class on the, the theology that's loaded in the Lord's Prayer over a series of weeks to a motley group of adults in an inner city church, in a Presbyterian church that had seen bigger and better days. This collection of adult students included well-educated mid-career urban dwellers and folks who were living the simple life, but not by choice. There was also one man who appeared to have no pulse. (laughs) But he surprised me one day when I asked them the definition of sanctification. He bolted to life like an electrically-socked patient and he blurted out a sophisticated dictionary definition, and then he returned to a state of suspended animation. It was an amazing experience. But the one who really surprised me was Grace. That was her name, Grace. Week after week, this woman, who probably lived in a one-room apartment, kept answering my questions, even pointing out differences in English versions of the Bible. So finally, I said, Grace, how do you know so much? And she told me, when I get up in the morning, I turn on WMBI, Moody Bible Institute's radio station, and I leave it on all day until I go to sleep at night. She had no title, no degrees, and no professional training, but she knew more about the Bible than most of my Wheaton students. On the other hand, There's Nicodemus. Nicodemus just didn't seem to get it the night that he encountered Jesus Christ. How can anyone be born after he's grown old? How can that be? I'm already born once in the family of Abraham. That should be enough. And I think the question is this for this story. Did Nicodemus ever get it? Truthfully, we don't know. The text doesn't say. Some say he did, and some say he didn't. Did he become a believer? Did he become a disciple of Jesus? Whether he did or not, the encounter that first night haunted him because he supports Jesus among his Pharisee colleagues in John chapter 7, even to the point that he is ridiculed and regarded as ignorant by his peers. And he accompanies Joseph of Arimathea in the honorable burial of Jesus. But here's the thing of all four Gospels, only John's account of this burial mentions Nicodemus. It's Joseph who ni- initiates the act, it's Joseph who is identified as a disciple of Jesus a secret one out of fear of the Jews while Nicodemus is still referred to by John simply as the one who had at first come to Jesus by night he supported Jesus he buried Jesus but did Nicodemus follow Jesus well we could easily be diverted by that kind of a question just like those who are easily diverted by questions like, what about those who never really hear the gospel? But the real question that I want to leave you and me with this morning, the one that you and I need to be asking, especially during these weeks of Lent, is this question. Which direction is that undetectable and uncontrollable spirit of God? Which direction is that wind? blowing in my life such that when I get to Easter, the results are going to be unmistakable. Let's take a few questions, two two, two minutes, a few minutes to think about that question. Where is the wind blowing in your life and what's going to happen at the end of the next few weeks?